Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, they were founding fathers of America, and they were also the best of friends. Adams was like, the Constitution, you can kind of bend that how you need to bend it. We can kind of work with this. And Jefferson was always like, Constitution is the Constitution. Can't with that. But they loved each other until Adams became president. And immediately they started butting heads. John Adams was like, it's illegal to talk any about the president of the United States. And if you disagree with the federal government, you. And Jefferson was like, well, this is tyranny. That's a violation of a little something called freedom of speech. It all really reaches its head on the election of 1800 where these two lifelong friends were pitted against each other. Adams is like, if you elect Thomas Jefferson, here's what you're gonna get. Murder, all the time. Everybody's gonna be murdering each other. Incest, your wives will lose their virtue, having sex with a lot of dudes, willy-nilly. So Jefferson starts talking a lot of about John Adams. We're talking about guys who like created this country. They were really like a bunch of eighth graders. the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Katia and Hannah. How are you guys doing? Good. You know, surviving. <laughs> surviving. That was almost as enthusiastic as Hannah was a couple weeks ago. She was like, I'm good. I just finished like, a five-hour <laughs> shift pretending to be a robot, and then another like several hours dissertating. So my brain okay. is unbrained. The dissertating thing I can like, you know, sympathize with, but I know you well enough to know that pretending to be a robot has been a dream of yours since you were a small child. I mean, this one I actually get paid for, but it's not as whimsical as I was hoping. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're pretending to be a robot, but trying to be human at the same time, as opposed to just going bleep bloop and stuff. And it's probably not yeah, as cool. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just like, I've assumed that whatever I'm, I'm doing is moving us slowly more towards the singularity. But guess what? Nah. Today is a great day. Oh, is it? Because you like have befriended Kesha in person. Uh, no, though that is the dream. <laughs> You've died and gone to the good place. Uh, I would not go to the good place. You are cast on the good place. Um, okay, because today, when this episode drops, is the day before Spider-Man Far From Home opens in theaters, to which I have IMAX oh tickets for opening day. And I'm very excited because Spider-Man is the embodiment of all things good. <laughs> oh, I don't know. She seems awfully happy, Katia. I, I was going to just point out that, like, as we record this, as predicted on the last episode, um, Mississippi. It's <laughs> just deflating that balloon. Yeah. Uh, is, this, is this about movie ratings? No. Oh, no, not about movie ratings oh. at all. This is about the World Series of college baseball. Yeah, we, we lost so much. Uh, and no, Mav, you will not be the lead. Wayne will always be the lead. I'm sorry. It's just, it's over now. It's probably over. <laughs> Also, also, Toy Story no, 4 telling, is super sad. I'm you guys. telling you. It's, I haven't seen it yet, but I know. I, yeah, I do want to see it. I, I, I've been trying to avoid spoilers. I'm hoping to go this week. I had to wait for I'm, I'm waiting for my niece to catch up to, no, um, to yeah, go see it. No spoilers. It. And then uh, it was so yeah. sad. I cried to the point where the credits ended and we had to leave the theater. 
and there was a concert going on outside the okay. mall. So I was still crying and there were a bunch of security guards and Josh was like, she's crying over Toy Story 4. It's fine. I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to see it 15 more times? So no, so I can I'm so sad. I can't handle it again. I don't think I ever want to watch it again. It just, it moved me in such a way. That's good. Well, you can see Lion King next week, which will be uplifting. No, I'm not ah! going. All right, you guys can do the show without me. Okay, enough goofiness. (laughs) Uh, We should. I always. I wonder if we should do like just update shows on how the game's going, so that you know, so that Katya's not not like subjected to it because she wouldn't appear on any of those. (laughs) I mean, I I had no opinions when we were picking movies. I just like other than Godzilla, I am gonna go see Godzilla. I'm excited about Godzilla. You better hurry before it gets yeah, out of here. I know. See, this is the problem is I don't like the whole like time aspect of it because I get busy and I don't actually like going to movie theaters and all this stuff. It's complicated. I hate it. Uh, like, are we getting to the point where they can just like live cast the movie into my brain? Actually, no, I don't want that. That would probably give me vertigo. Uh, hmm. We always wanted to do a transhumanism episode. But that's oh, not this boy. week. <laughs> this week. No. This week, we're talking about well, see, and this was a weird one to to even like title, but I think the title is mythologizing the founders. That's what the yes. call, call for comments says. What does that mean? Uh, so, by the way, there was a point in time when I kept trying to say mythologizing and I couldn't. Um, what did you say? Mythologizing. I, at one point, <laughs> I just even couldn't finish the word. I just was like, Mithla, oh, I don't know what. I mean, Mithal is a place. It's just in the Lord of the Rings universe, I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, so not not Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so this has nothing to do with Lord of the Rings, except I guess there is mythology with Lord of the Rings. Ah, but that's where you're wrong, because actually Lord of the Rings is also an expression of manifest destiny. That too, Ooh. yes. Um I actually don't have evidence for that reading other than what I just sort of imagined in my head in the last 30 seconds, but I probably could. <laughs> Look, at the end... But no, I mean, isn't the idea, like, as the Americanist in the room who didn't actually come up with this uh, in this episode topic, I mean, the idea, isn't it just basically, like, the way that we build these myths, these stories around, like, the founders, around the revolution, that we kind of believe are true, because mm-hmm. we repeat them often enough, but have nothing to really actually necessarily do with historical That's records, true. right? And also, mm-hmm. even if yeah. things aren't, it, sometimes they don't matter. It doesn't matter if they're true or not. It's just what we're invested in. And even how we tell certain stories, like take, for example, Thomas Jefferson's relationship with Sally Hemings. It's a rape. Like, she was his slave. But if you call her his mistress, that codes it as something very different. That It's not, like... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there have been like countless things written upon well, this. Yeah, and what you're talking about is something. So, like, I actually do a lot of reading and sort of like the concept of what we call myth history. So, this is basically a lot of historians have acknowledged the way that any historical narrative, something that like yes is based in fact, is automatically some somewhat mythological um, in the sense that it cannot claim to be intrinsically factual and it includes a fictional or like fantastic element because we can never know all the facts exactly as they happened. And we're also looking at history through our sort of like interpretive lens of the present. 
Um, so everything's sort of like, and, and things often tend to be a little bit um, rose colored because of that, because we want to, of course, look at things like, oh, the founding of our country and be like, oh, yes, great things happened, you know. Benjamin Franklin was groovy and had newspapers. Mm -hmm. Well, before we get into, you know, how much the founding of our country. Oh, by the way, the reason we're doing this is if you don't live in the United States, which most of our listeners do, but many of you don't. This week, um, as this episode drops, is Independence Day for our country, the day in which we celebrate how amazing and awesome we are. And we're about to ruin that. So before we do so, we should introduce the guest. Yes. So, um, also to be fair, didn't we already ruin that because of, you know, history? Uh, yeah, no. yeah, well, I mean, like, you know, we'll do it again. <laughs> I mean, just anyway. Uh, Our guest. Uh, so, uh, my brother in law, Charlie Bell, is back uh, because Charlie has a unique perspective because he has a hobby. Charlie, <laughs> you can tell them more. Hi. Yeah. So, I'm Charlie. And um, since I was a sophomore in high school, I've been working summers at a place in Montevallo, Alabama called the American Village. And the way I generally describe the American Village is it's sort of like colonial Williamsburg, but without all of the uh, craftsmen. It, we just sort of have actors who portray either actual historical people, um, like we have a Thomas Jefferson who works there full time and a Patrick Henry. Sometimes he plays John Adams. I just, I just love the phrase, we have a Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. <laughs> we used to have a George Washington, but he retired and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, also a great phrase. I really want to make these sound bites. I'll isolate the audio and send it to you so you can have, have him saying that as a ringtone. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it's a lot of fun. It, it's sort of uh, attempting to be an immersive sort of experience. And it's really geared mostly towards younger school children. During the school year, they have a bunch of school groups who come in and, and to go through uh, programming to sort of remind them sort of like the cost of liberty. And they're really pushing to get people to engage in sort of local government and the idea that that these big things only happen because normal everyday people start doing something first. And what can you do to be a good citizen as a third grader? This is fascinating to me just as the uh, West coaster of the show, because we don't have like, obviously Oregon was not part of the original 13 colonies. Um, at the time I was believe it was owned by the, like being colonized by the French. If I remember correctly, Louisiana purchase American history. Do I know that? Yeah. Something like that. Anyway, <laughs> Uh, so we all had stuff that was like Lewis and Clark and like much later, like, you know, that was, and I should get a lot of native American, like all of our like reenactments we visited as kids were like native American settlements and like beaver trappers. So it's a very different picture of American history and really everything you just talked about. Um, so I'm really curious, like how you said you got into this as a sophomore in high school. Yeah, there was, they had a summer program and, um, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last episode, but, uh, for a long time, my, I wanted to be an actor. Um, and so there was this thing where you could act and do sort of, it's sort of an improvisation kind of thing because you're interacting with, um, with the guests as they come in and, and you're playing games with them like colonial games. And one of my friends at school was doing it. And so I applied and, and got in and then, um, after a while I aged out. So after high school, you can't volunteer anymore. And they started hiring me in the summers. 
And um, actually, on Independence Day, I will be portraying uh, Colonel Alexander Hamilton mm-hmm. in the year 1781. So it's been fun, and it's a great way to get a paycheck. Wait, the, the most the, fun job I've ever had. A specific year matters? You said in the year 1781. Like, is there yeah. A- yeah, I was going to ask, how do you prepare yeah. for this? So it depends. So if I were there the whole time and I were a full-time employee and I was always Alexander Hamilton, I would do a lot more research than I've done. Um, and I would know everything about Alexander Hamilton and I'd have a really, or everything that we can know based on like all the biographies that are out, go read all of his letters, any sort of document that he wrote or that was written about him, that kind of stuff. And you know the timeline. So the year matters. So in 1781, right, Alexander Hamilton hasn't had his duel with Burr, right? So he doesn't know that that Burr is going to kill him. And 1781, he's he has just resigned for, uh, from George. He was George Washington's aide de camp, and he's just resigned that and gotten his own commission. Okay, so. In the scene that I'm in, he's excited about that, and none of his children have been born yet. So you have to know what year it is for you. Otherwise, you can't convincing, you know, people will talk to you. They try to trip you up, too. They come, and they're like, oh, what about this thing? And you have to know, oh, that happened in 1784. I know nothing about this. Wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me that there are people who are like Dwight from The Office in that episode where Benjamin Franklin visits and he tries to prove that Benjamin Franklin's not Benjamin Franklin? Yes. No one knows what I'm talking about in this one. I know exactly what you're talking about. And and I have just like so many questions. Yeah. Here's the thing I'm wondering, you know, because in, in my head, this looks a lot like Westworld, except for you're not a robot because, you know, Katya is. I try. But like if I go there, if I'm booking, what's the place called again? The American Village. The American Village. So if I'm booking my my, you know, I'm I'm booking my honeymoon to the American Village or whatever, you know, I'm, my family. <laughs> That's vacation, not going to happen. My family, vacation, <laughs> whatever, whatever. For whatever reason, me and the kids are coming to the American Village and we're going to have yeah. the, the wife, the kids. We're going to have a great American Village weekend. Right. Do I know ahead of time that I'm going to the American Village of 1779? I'm going or, or no, wait. But if I wait till next week, I can go to 1781. Is it like when I walk in okay. the door, how do I know which year? Because if I, you know, if I really want to see Alexander Hamilton get shot, do I have to know what year I'm, I'm picking in? I'm, I am curious as to, as to Matt's question. I also want to know how you pick the given year. So, OK, so great question. So I didn't write the script. Um, the year was chosen for me. And we have a script writer, our head of um, we call it historical interpretation instead of acting. Our head of an historical I, I interpretation love this title. I have so many thoughts. and his um, and his wife, they write all of our scripts. So it's really given to us. And um, the people who are full time employees, so like our Thomas Jefferson, um, he can say, hey, you know, it would be cool if we did a scene in this year and pitch ideas and help with the script. But for the most part, um, Billy and Noel write the scripts we get them and we um, we perform them. As far as visiting the village and saying, "Hey, I'm I'm going." Like I said, most of it is throughout the year is geared towards school children, so they really mostly just book um, school trips. So fifth graders, sixth graders, not maybe some high schoolers sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, during the summer, however. 
people walk in and in the past they've done this really cool thing called camp 1776 where you help Nathan Hale, um, get, get a message to the continental army to get out of New York because all these bad things are happening. And then you see Nathan Hale get executed and you help these Scottish, Scottish, um, spies get messages back and forth. Um, so it's sort of immersive and a fun thing, but in the past few years, it's been more like just separate scenes. So it's not a cohesive, like you're going to walk into the American village in 1789. It's a, you go see Alexander Hamilton and he's in 1781, but over here you've got Patrick Henry and he's doing his famous speech, which I shouldn't know what year he, he gave that speech in, but I can't pull Mm -hmm. it up. Uh, so there's different there's things from different time periods happening in different parts right right simultaneously okay so there are like two or three things you can choose from you can go learn how to fire a musket uh with whoever our military expert decides to be that day he has like eight eight or ten people he rotates through um or you can go see phyllis wheatley talk about her poetry or um whoever else we have, Thomas Paine, or you can do some generic stuff. Okay. So in Hamilton gets shot in 1804. So, so while yes. you're there and you said you're 1781. That's right. So while you're okay. there in 1781, you know, in the Northeast corner of the park, is there a guy in the Southwest corner of the park? Who's also being Hamilton getting shot in 1804? No, they, they try to make it so that there's only one person playing each, each, um, person each historical figure uh yeah because then you can have inception and then george washington could meet george washington (laughs) but like last year they had they had me do this same vignette from 1781 and then at the very end of the day they staged the duel between hamilton and burr and i was hamilton again but i had on old man makeup did you did you like get to put age 20 years and put on old no, man makeup because we were using actual firearms we were using um authentic uh flintlock pistols so mm-hmm. we were far enough away that they couldn't really see my face but i had changed my entire outfit so that i looked like i was in 1804 rather than 1781 so um, because the the fifth graders are connoisseurs uh, of 17 of 18th and 19th yeah, century yeah, clothing and they know the difference uh, don't assume don't assume <laughs> hey man did you meet me in seventh grade <laughs> i was into some obscure nerd i, am, I imagine I there like are nerds age. for everything i you know i i have seen people argue the anachronistic nature of the batman symbol from <laughs> from like being in you know this is not the 1941 batman symbol that is the 1952 batman symbol <laughs> You know, what, 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 you know, what kind of ridiculousness is this? <laughs> How do you not know that? You, right. so, you so I totally believe this. Uh, but if you go to AmericanVillage.org, you can see their list of events uh, and read their website, which I have. Uh, <laughs> so I'm like fascinated this, uh, by this on like multiple levels, mainly, and I'm like not really sure where to start. But you said that you're, you're what was the title you said the actors were called? historical interpreters see that's actually a really like apt term because like one of the like the concept i was talking about at the beginning like myth histories i mean you guys are even if you're being given a script like the way you're performing is you're giving it like sub- your subjective reading of like what this person was like right and um it, it is sort of subjective it's an interpretation but 
I want to stress it's grounded in as much historical, um, for lack of a better term, paraphernalia as we can get, you know, um, the people who, who write the scripts are doing a lot of research before they write them. But yeah, um, I think that's the same term that they use at colonial Williamsburg. It's historical interpretation. And we, we tend to say we're not reenactors. That tends to be civil war people. Um, we're not reenactors because we are not doing exactly what, what was happening. We're trying to interpret history to, get some sort of message across, whatever that message is. And it seems that based on American Village's mission statement, which I will just quote, the American Village serves the nation as an educational institution whose mission is to strengthen and renew the foundations of American liberty and self-government by engaging and inspiring citizens leaders with a special emphasis on programs for young people. It's, It's really like about education, yes, but also like they, they're really, they seem to be really interested in liberty and like participating in democracy. Yes. Right. So, so presumably it's a fairly, I mean, especially just being targeted towards children about a, I mean, about a period where you're having duels where people are getting killed. Like I'm even just on that level, it's probably very heavily cherry picked. Oh yeah. I mean, on one level, I think it, it has to be pretty cherry-picked. Um, well, what do you mean by cherry pick? Well, I guess what I'm saying, like, if you're presenting this as an educational experience, but it's also interpretive in that you're doing a lot of, re- like, uh, recreation and making a lot of assumptions. And, like, part of what makes, what I was talking about earlier, like, the concept of myth history, part of what makes something a myth history or a myth is that it actually is, to a certain degree, plausible. It's based in historical record or someone's experience it has to have of like explanatory value that's what distinguishes a myth from pure fiction plausible used very loosely obviously um mm-hmm. because various right, I, I, right. I don't know do we want to define myth well it, i think that's strongly why I, or it's 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 myth is a loose I mean, definition anyway <laughs> but um yeah, usually when I use myth, I say that some is a, a story that combines fact and fiction in a way that has um, yeah. meaningful explanatory value. Right. So it's something that's useful, um, yeah, and it's yeah. about the actual world, but it isn't. It is like self consciously not factual. Which all I mean, a lot of historians would argue that any historical narrative, no matter how based right. in fact, is inherently mythological. Because, well, like even the distinction, Charlie, you drew between reenactors and what you guys do. I mean, I would actually argue that reenacting history is mythologizing. I absolutely would. Well, I would like well, I, it's I, impossible. I, I, right. I, I, I don't think there's any any way you could credibly claim to reenact history. Um, the fact right. that there are people with cell phones recording reenactors supposedly doing the Civil War. Also, mm-hmm. no one dies in a reenactment. Um, it's inherently not the same thing. It's mediated in the same way that what mm-hmm. you're doing is mediated in a different way. Um, yeah. But I guess what I mean by cherry-picked is that the p- project that Hannah just described is one that is shaped by a really specific understanding and narrative that's drawn from historical fact but isn't exactly a historical account of everything that was happening. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. I mean, in, inevitably that has to be, I, I would say any, any place like this has to sort of cherry pick. So like, I, I, I guess like an example maybe is that Alexander Hamilton had 
an affair, the Reynolds yeah. affair pamphlet was a deal and a big part of his life. But maybe that's not what you're going to tell the very young kids who visit first of course, thing. Right. They don't, they don't have a scene written out for Alexander Hamilton with the, the affair they have early in the war or in the war. Um, it's not terribly early in the war. And <laughs> when he's dead, right. He, he's dying. Um, just in the same way, Thomas Jefferson, probably isn't going to focus on the um the the rape that you you discussed earlier today was that during what we were recording yes yes this is gonna be my cherry picking is that like i mean and our history textbooks do this too and like k through 12 education and actually college education does this too of like giving a really romanticized flattering picture Mm -hmm. of influential historical figures because we want to believe, you know, we want to believe a particular story about the American, like the founding of our country. We are the United States of America, the greatest country on the face of the earth. The streets will flow with the blood of the non-believer. Right. America. Even things that like have different projects than American village, like say Hamilton. Um, And, you know, Hamilton's message, the musical. Uh, in case anyone doesn't know what that Hamilton is. And if you don't, you should. And it's amazing. Yeah, not our Alexander Hamilton because we have resurrected Uh, him in effigy. Yes. Uh, So uh, Hamilton, the musical, like, has very pro-immigrant messages and also, like, specifically with its multiracial cast and the like focus it gives some of the female characters. It, you know, is partially trying to make the point that, like, America is not founded just by and for like white privileged dudes like it's a country that encompasses a diverse array of people but whenever they make some points they like change history a little bit to make alexander hamilton look better than he actually was like in the in the song yorktown they're singing uh, and so the american experiment begins with my friends also the winds lawrence in south, south carolina redefining bravery will never be free until we end slavery and hamilton says that line and that one little line recast Hamilton as much more anti-slavery than he actually was in the real world. And like, obviously like the musical is trying to do something, you know, a lot different than just, you know, like an older musical, like 1776, which was just like, white guys are awesome. (laughs) Let's let's celebrate Benjamin Franklin and his obsession with many women. Um, Or, or Thomas Jefferson's sexual prowess. There's an entire song about that. It's it's a funny musical, though. And, oh yeah, anyway. But I guess to me, Hamilton's different, though, because, I mean, Hamilton, just even from the casting, you can tell, is not trying to reproduce a historical narrative. Exactly. No, it's not. But the, you know. It's, in fact, like commenting on it. Yes, it is. And that's, there is a big difference. And, but the one thing that Hamilton does, even though it does a lot of great things, and I am not saying Hamilton is bad because it's amazing and wonderful and everyone should go see it. Hannah, in case people haven't figured out, is a little obsessed with Hamilton. Uh, yeah, but yeah. look, I, I did he a lot of crazy things to go get tickets <laughs> when it came to Durham. Anyway. You did. You did. Yeah, I did. Uh, anyway. It was a topic of conversation for weeks. But you know what? I was not one of the people on Twitter who had a meltdown over Ticketmaster. But, you know, that's not important. What's important is that even though Hamilton... If you hadn't gotten a ticket, you might have been. No, I... (laughs) uh, First of all, if I got... I got (laughs) one. I did. I got a ticket. I did not say hashtag bless Jesus loves me, which someone did. I, uh, two... 
I did not. I would not have. Hey man, they were just they were just feeling the the love of Jesus in their Hamilton ticket. <laughs> I mean, it's it's fine, but uh, I, I you know anyway. So but, the Lord works in mysterious ways sometimes through Ticketmaster. I guess I suppose so. I guess I shouldn't bite the hand that feeds me because Ticketmaster worked in my favor. Uh, but <laughs> like, Hamilton does a lot of really interesting things, even just with casting and how it, you know, writes certain stories and uses different genres of music. And I'm not saying that that's not there, but what Hamilton also does is it falls into what we call the great man narrative. Um, uh, and mm-hmm. like, it is about Hamilton's journey and how exceptional he was and how through his work, he shaped America in particular, the banking system and how America would not be the same without Hamilton's touch and Hamilton does put an important emphasis on like how people's stories are told and you can't control that narrative, but it also like kind of falls back into telling like the same narrative over and over again. And Mm -hmm. though I will say it does gesture at like telling other people's stories, like Eliza Hamilton, it kind of ends with her. And a lot of people have said, you know, actually, maybe it would have been cool to have an Eliza Hamilton musical. You know, we could take the, like this further, what Lin-Manuel Miranda was trying to do and move it further. But this is, this is, yes, this is all to say that even with things like Hamilton that do super cool things and kind of challenge this great man myth, there's still a lot of mythology around the founders and we invest in their personalized stories and specific people stories like Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, uh, instead of like looking at a greater whole of American history because, you know, there were women fighting in the revolution. We don't really hear about, there were black people fighting. There were indigenous people. Uh, even the fact that we like think of like independence day as the day ish (laughs) that we signed the declaration of independence, um, (laughs) as like, you know, the founding of the country and like that signing as like a founding tells a different story than if we talked about what happened before, seller colonialists even showed up here you know right well and i think like part of the challenge i think and like again going back to historic historians blah 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 like part of the challenge is like as soon as you're putting anything into a narrative form basically like anytime you're communicating a story of any kind whether it's based in fact or just made it in your head there's certain like formal things you have to do i mean i think part of the reason like hannah you were talking about like the great man narrative part of the reason that that's really prominent is because it's easy it's easier to organize a story around a singular person than it is to tell like the actual complex inner workings of like hundreds of thousands of people coming together in like ways that are basically untraceable that doesn't make it true but it does make it useful and that's part of what myths which have their drawbacks, which I think we've sort of started getting into, but myths definitely have their drawbacks, but they're part of the reason myths persist and his, history always has a mythological sort of like dimension to it is because they're really useful. They're really useful for condensing information. Yeah. The problem is when myths are treated as historical fact and they're tra- treated as his synonymous with historical fact, that's when it becomes a problem because people stop acknowledging like, for example, like the Benjamin Franklin um, flying a kite. Well, but no, oh, like, sure. no, like uh, um, all of the, like the founding fathers that were slave owners. And you're talking about like especially like the rape of black women, um, also just women generally, also just the position of women in the revolutionary period and people of color, et cetera, et cetera. That's all kind of lost because that doesn't fit neatly mm-hmm. into the story that, you know, people want that people have historically wanted to tell. Well, I think some of those narratives could, and I think that's where places um, 
I sort of think of this as like the literary canon, you know, I think it's sort of a futile um, exercise to say like, let's get rid of the canon altogether. Um, I I don't think we're ever going to like get away from some of these white male authors, but I think we can add to the canon. And I think that's where, where some of these, these moments can be really productive in places like living history places like the American village. If we can get people of color, get, get native Americans to come and and tell their stories and, and have them represented and and talk about these things. But then will you still have a place where children can come? Right. So for the school, for the school programming, we can't do that. Right. But for like the 4th of July, we have some of those, um, we have some of those more mature adult, uh, programs. Like no kid is going to want to come see my Alexander Hamilton bit because it is really technical. It talks a lot about economy. There's no sort of like hands on Mm -hmm. thing. I just talk to a room of people who are sitting there, right? It's more geared towards adults. And in these special days like that, that's where we can do some of that work. I understand what you're saying, but I think the problem is with that is once you once you've already ingrained in somebody the myth, like the myth, the story that these people were unassailable, it's really hard to get someone to believe otherwise. That's true, right? And when do you do it? Is what I'm getting yeah. at because, like, I'm just going to assume that there's probably some sort of skit that you guys have where where Jefferson sits at a, at a you know really ornate desk and and just sits down and says well let's see when in the course of human events it becomes yeah, you, know, yeah. like, you know like where yeah, like that's got to be one right and at what point and I understand why that's shown I understand why that skit is shown to fourth graders but I totally get it right but the question is when I mean you're not going to have the skit where Thomas Jefferson is bored and horny one day and decides to go rape some slaves. Like that's just not going to be and a thing. It's also frankly right? not going to be a thing for adults. Yeah, no. Right. For, that's what I mean. For, for anybody, that skit's not going right. to be there. And I don't know. Now it's, it's weird because this is what I was really interested in for this episode. You have to sort of get into the question of mythologizing. I pointed out the Benjamin Franklin flying a kite thing. Why do we like that story? Why do we like the story of George Washington chopping down a cherry tree and not being able to tell a lie? Like these are myths, right? Which never happened, but these are myths that, that establish the greatness of this, this guy that we want to believe in as an American hero. And if you read history, you know that Franklin was a womanizer. You know, like Franklin's big hobby was going off to France and seeing as many prostitutes as possible. That's a thing, you know, and, and I'd watch that movie, but a lot of people really would, you know, so. There would be like national outcry from a lot of people. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's not that necessarily these stories don't appeal to people or of interest to people. It's that I think that there's a lot of like stakeholders in it that would actively, prevent people from doing that. I mean, I was even just thinking while we were talking, it's like, well, actually like like the reenactments I went into, went to as a kid talked actually really graphically about how, um, American soldiers and people based would like, uh, would scalp native American Indians. And like, we talked, we learned pretty graphically in, in like fourth and fifth grade about a lot of the violence perpetrated against native Americans in the Northwest, so I think it's, I mean, I can't imagine those same stories being told, though, about 
the American Revolution or even, frankly, the Civil War, especially on the East Coast. I mean, there's a question of what's the purpose of history? Well, you know, we're, we're getting into the humanities a bit, but there's two things that we're, we're looking for. History is a narrative. History is always a narrative. And, and we, I should say, I'm going to use the word we lightly. We as a people, as an, as um, a culture, yeah, with, as a country, not the four of us, because all four of us happen to be literature majors professionally but as a people we tend to think of history as the real fact and that's different from fiction from poetry but history is still a narrative you know to the victor go to the spoils history is written by you know you know we we tell the story that we want to tell we want to believe that george washington was this great honest individual so we created myths both you know even ones that people don't believe like the cherry tree but even everything that we think about you know him standing on the boat you know valiantly going forward as the the, um, as he crosses the delaware you know and ignoring the fact that Everyone was dying around him. Yeah. Also, a great illustration of why perspective matters about this. And I just was remembered, Mavel, you were talking. It's something that Hannah will hopefully link in the show notes. She found this great Japanese epic. That's like like a retelling of the American Revolutionary War as told by the Japanese. There are mountain fairies. (laughs) <laughs> Guys, it's amazing. We're going to look at the show notes. You need to look it out. I, I am convinced that like the plot of several Zelda games are is basically <laughs> this. It's beautiful and amazing and zany. But it, I mean, aside from the fact that it's like, clearly fictionalized in some very blatant ways, it actually illustrates in a really powerful way. It's like this is a culture that doesn't necessarily in this time period have huge stakes in portraying the American Revolution you know, super pro or, I mean, they're probably, they're against colonization probably because historically they've been screwed by that many times because China, but like they probably don't have the same stakes that we, I mean, they obviously have the same stakes that we do and how we represent the revolution. And it's really fascinating to see like they saw, even, even this book is like, this is a really heroic sort of like great man story there just also happens to be fairies and all this really crazy mm-hmm. stuff, and it's amazing. Or they, or they fight like giant snakes. Anyway, it's um, awesome. I can't read Japanese, otherwise I would really want to read this thing, but I might learn just so I could read it because it's <laughs> fabulous. But you know, I, I think that like this, like what we've been talking about, kind of is summarized by Benedict Anderson, who wrote a book called Imagine Communities, and awesome. what he. Uh, what he said in that is that uh, nationhood uh, is imagined and we connect through stories, basically. But in connecting through those stories, even though we don't meet each other, all each other, like every other person in this nation, it's, quote, imagined as a community because regardless of the actual inequality and exploitation that may prevail in each, the nation is always conceived as a deep horizontal camaraderie ship. Ultimately, it is this fraternity that makes it possible over the past two centuries for so many millions of people not so much to kill as willing to die for such a lim- limited imaginings. Like, we are really invested in a concept of America that sometimes could be hard to find because... Like, what does liberty and equality and, like, self-government mean to each specific person? Especially since those are almost the same words that are used by the French. And French society is clearly yeah, very yeah, different but, from American society, even though the founding documents were actually like, based I found, on you know, Anderson interesting when talking about this because we're talking about 
how we mythologize like these male founders and Anderson is talking about like everyone in a nation, but he makes it a brotherhood, a fraternity. And, you know, he's not the only theorist of nationalism who's been like, Oh yes, brotherhood. All men are created equal. Yes, this is a thing. But you know, like foundings of nations always seem to be masculinized. And, you know, I, I also think it's interesting with Anderson also is like, saying that like these stories and these imaginings and this community that's not real, but we think it's real is real enough to us that like, you know, people are willing to die to protect this story. So we're very invested in it. And I, I, I know, you know, Anderson is kind of old um, hat at this point, but I, I think it it's still pretty true because I mean, who doesn't want to go to Hamilton and rock out about how awesome it is. <laughs> Well, my question is, this goes back to the mythologizing aspect. Why do we want to do this anyway? Right. Like, yes, you know, the great man theory. Right. Why do we need great men? And I don't mean and I mean the humans in the first place. Why do we want these heroes? Why do we want, you know, be it a be it a white hero, um, a, a white man like George Washington or, you know, you know, uh, racialize them into the cast of Hamilton or whatever you want. We're still looking, we're not really interested in the real narrative. We're interested in a story that makes us feel good. Why do we watch bell picks instead of documentaries? You know, we, we back on our, on our whole Oscar episode, you know, we, there was points where we talked a lot about, um, about our feelings with certain films, but you know, we could just watch a clean documentary. There are lots of them, but we don't. We watch Bohemian Rhapsody cuz or uh, what's the one? The the whitewashed um, jazz singer. Green Book. Green Book. Yes. Why do we watch Green Book? Green Book makes you feel good in a way that um, that maybe you don't want to feel bad about the actual story. Well, actually, I think the best way I know how to like think about this is oddly enough for me of all people on the show is uh, a comic book theorist. Mm -hmm. Who's the one that writes about it's uh, understanding comics. Why am I forgetting his name? Scott McCloud. Scott McCloud. Thank you. Um, writes about like really like the more you simplify a character, the more your reader is likely to identify with them because basically they're made into like a more abstract quote unquote universal figure. Mm -hmm. Right. I think, I mean, mythologizing does a really kind of the same thing is it makes something, it makes a story more digestible because I think when you have a lot of historical facts, basically all of those details and intricacies, even though they're accurate, they can make something a lot harder to un really get at not only like comprehension level, but especially at an emotional and mm -hmm. visceral level. Right. So especially if we're trying like th this, you know, place like where Charlie's working at, like if we're trying to like, talk about these really abstract concepts like what is liberty that emotional visceral connection is probably going to be a lot more valuable than talking about a dictionary definition but i think the other part of it is, is we i mean going back to what hannah was talking about benedict anderson is like in order to imagine a community we we have to tell stories that explain how that community comes to be there's a reason why a lot of myths from cultures around the world are origin myths. I mean, creation myths too. Right. I mean, even sort of like, like stuff like, like the idea that, that America has a manifest mm -hmm. destiny. That was a story told to incite a particular idea of what America, what, what Americans and a particular kind of American should do in colonizing mm -hmm. the West. Was it based on a factual argument based on statistics and economics? Not really. We did the same thing mm -hmm. for the space race. 
you know? Yeah, like, well, Manifest Destiny, well, and the space race, they were both mythologized in real right? time. You know, it's, um, right. as, so there's, there's two kinds of myths we're looking at. We're looking at, we will put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, you know, that kind of thing that Kennedy did, which was, you know, he, he really, you know, he made it a, this is, you know, this is our job as Americans. And, and we do that same, we do the same thing. This isn't, I, I don't mean to pick on one side or the other, whether you're, whether you're uh, Donald Trump saying build that wall or you're a Bernie Sanders saying give people free college you know we're we're making it and you know this is you know we're we are doing a great thing this will be historic this will be this one thing that you're talking to your base about doing so there's there's that kind of mythologizing where it's like we are trying to build a a sense of power in real time at the current time but we also have the mythologizing that we do of the past where we sort of say you know, this is what we should do because this is what the founders would have wanted. You know, the founders wanted everybody to be equal. The founders wanted us to have guns. The founders wanted this. The founders wanted that as though everything that these men did 200 and some odd years ago was a great idea. It also matters. Also, like, continues I, to matter. I asked Josh about this uh, because he didn't want to be on the show. <laughs> but and because of his law expertise or because yeah. of historical expertise i mean he reads more historical books like strictly historical books than i probably do Josh about history but, that i find very disturbing but he also <laughs> like you know like he he works has read like a billion things in law and i was like well are what the founders say are like you know precedent um in terms of like legality like does that stuff still matter and he was like yeah and it gets cited a lot mm-hmm. um i so it, it, it isn't even just like in terms of like we tell stories and we like feel pride in our nation. It's like the things that like Alexander Hamilton said in the Federalist Papers can be quoted mm-hmm. in legal documents that have real effects on real people. Although there is a question between what is done in law right. and what should be done. I mean, well, yes, this is probably another episode, but like a lot of I've also done a lot of re- re- readings in research and how legal truth is constructed even lawyers and judges would acknowledge that what ca- what is truth in the law is heavily mm-hmm. mythologized. Oh, yeah, Josh would, heavily I'm sure Josh would agree with that mm-hmm. based on his comments. Right. I don't want to speak for him. And when he eventually listens to this episode, I don't want him to yell at me. <laughs> there we are. Um, but, you, you know, I, I think that like, you know, to go back to a little bit of what you were saying, Mav, I think one reason why these like myths are so important and like why we have stakes in them is because of political consequences. Um, like Trump's mm-hmm. make America great again only has power. If you think that America was super great at some in, point in the past, like if you, if right. you say, Oh, well, like everything was perfect when the founders were doing this and it was all about the values that we like code is good. That's different. And it doesn't matter what version you believe in it's about the slogan so the slogan can refer like you can basically interpret that slogan in whatever you think was the better time exactly 1779 that one year but like i mean because you'd even like i remember there were like especially during the um last election it's like there were they would people would interview like well what does making america great like mean to like this specific person and if they could articulate a specific answer at all like it would, it would vary really wide, yeah. like widely between individual people. If you've 
picked up from the show before I, I read and watch a lot of political stuff for fun because I'm a weirdo. And so um, for most of the stuff that I've seen, when America was great, according to the people who are Trump supporters, including Trump himself, by the fact, by the way, it's almost always a point that was, you know, back when I was a kid. So Trump, for instance, very much believes yeah. that America was really, really, really great. Trump's 70. So, um, you know, basically when he was 10 and if you know if you're 40 you believe america's great when you were 10 which is also yeah. what every generation has thought yeah, right. since the because dawn of time. Amer- sure america was great when you were 10 because you were fucking 10 and you had no real responsibilities and you know people took care of you the world you know worked out relative i mean unless you had a bad life you well, know and also be- because unless you have extreme like you're saying it's like unless you have specific reasons not to most people have a tendency to romanticize mm-hmm. or mythologize. Right. He was a rich, he was rich and like his parents took care of him and he didn't really have anything to do. So being 10 wasn't so bad for him, but he's not aware of the fact that again, obviously I'm not a big Trump fan, but I'm even giving him you know a break here, even though it's not going to sound like it. He's not really aware of how bad things were for civil rights at the point in which he thinks things were great. He might know um, in the abstract and he's enough of an asshole that he might, then he might not care. But I mean, he's not, not, it was outside of his personal yes, experience. He's not, he doesn't have an actual perspective on this. It seemed pretty great to him. And frankly, for most people, that's true. Even if you, I mean, yeah. You know. And in very different ways, like Joe yes. Biden has made similar comments yeah. actually about, especially yes. treatment towards women, you know, and they're of a similar age. And he's like, oh, well, this was normal when I was, you know, X age. And then therefore mm-hmm. that's okay. Um, I don't think he's quite as, I mean, yeah, he's, but he's also you know, objectionable, but well, actually he's, he's, also, um, he's also made comments about working with segregationists and he mar- like was like, look at this. This is like a hallmark of civility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he's also, you know, made comments about segregation as well. So mm-hmm. I mean, civility politics is yes, also well, that, yes. uh, But you know, <laughs> to take it back to the founders, um, Mav actually got in contact with a guy who studies the founders, Thomas mm-hmm. Foster, who wrote a book, Sex and the Founding Fathers. The and um, yes, and uh, like what he says in his introduction is like the reason why the founders matter is because we keep changing them <laughs> generation from generation to like have them reflect our values. And also, people really like a personalized narrative history, like we've kind of talked about. And uh, you know, his, his book is about like the sex lives of the founders and it's, uh, and it corrects like some interesting assumptions. Um, and also talks about, that's got to be such a weird project to <laughs> uh, research. Sorry. I'm actually, I'm like <laughs> super into it, but I'm also super into Benjamin Franklin's autobiography and how he like tracked his virtues. So I'm also just very <laughs> concerned basically about the implication that you are super into Benjamin Franklin's no, sex it's, life. It's his virtues, not his I'm sex gonna, life. Um, uh, okay. Okay. I mean, was it one of his virtues, chastity, or something? No, no, no. Twelve is chastity. It's temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity. Uh, also, for that, for the health of our and. And I also want to point out, and this really doesn't add anything to analysis, that the art of manliness sells a Benjamin Franklin virtue journal 
and you can buy it. And they really, I think it's sold out because people just wanted it. Yeah, it's been out of stock because it was so popular. And but in buying it, you would be violating one of the virtues because it is. And you can order refills for $20. So yeah, you're breaking frugality. So it goes against the exact thing that Benjamin Franklin would want you to do. But I thought that that was so fascinating. Although the people that are making it are doing exactly what Benjamin Franklin wanted them to do. And they're making money off of people who don't think. So I just want to point out, like Hannah just did that entire list of virtues off the top of her head. Like you don't have, do you have those just memorized because for whatever reason. <laughs> Is it more nerdy to say I have them memorized or that I have Benjamin Franklin's autobiography open in front of me? I, you know, I, I mean, you, you can pretend that you're just doing it for the show in, in quotes. <laughs> uh, I have Benjamin Franklin's uh, biography open in front of me. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, if you memorized it, I might be a little bit more like concerned about how you spend your free time. But, you know, I spend my free time playing board games. <laughs> no one needs to. Anyway, I, I can almost guarantee you there's a board game based off of Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. In this oh, you know what? If it's sure recent, we should make one and see if we can collect the most <laughs> virtues. It would sell. I'm telling you. Well, so here's the thing, though. He has this list I of just virtues. It up. Franklin's of Fortune, an incredibly fun strategy game. Oh, man. I told I gonna, you. But see, that means we can play it, Hannah. It's going to be rich. Yeah. Linked in the show notes. Everybody can play it with us. (laughs) But no, no, but we have these, you have these Franklin virtues, right? And you're, I mean, you live up to them or you don't, but like people care about them enough to make a game and people care about, people care about, you know, the history. We talked about the Foster book. Why does anybody care about the sex lives of George Washington or, or Benjamin Franklin? Why does anybody care about, why does anybody care about what the founding fathers thought about the right to bear arms, which we mostly misinterpret anyway, but why, what does the right to carry a musket have anything to do with the right to carry you know an uzi in 2019 the point is it's been 200 years 230 years why does anyone give a fuck at all because that's when america was great (laughs) again apparently (laughs) well if the founders mean you know if they mean whatever we want them to mean right like why why do we care about franklin's virtues or about the founding fathers thoughts behind the the you know the bill of rights Obviously, there's legal bearing on this, which which Hannah said, but also, you know, w- we care about in believing in these myths because I, I think that if we can say, well, George Washington would have agreed with me, somehow that makes you feel like your opinion's more valid. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, especially when we're talking about political debates. I mean, that has I mean, there's a reason why it feels the founding fathers and the Revolutionary War and all these different things happen in political context. Mm-hmm. They have immense political power when they're used by presidents or congressmen or governors because there's there's always this idea of like, oh, we're fulfilling not just like it's not even just necessarily traditional American values or making America great again or this like mythological, wonderful America of the past that never actually existed. It's the idea that you are fulfilling the promise of the Revolutionary War. I mean, this is actually something that I was thinking about we were preparing for this episode is there is a science fiction um, scholar that went to my university several years ago named Jerry Canavan, who said that uh, America is a quintessentially science fictional nation because it is based on a set of values that 
were basically utopian did not exist at the time the declaration was was written Mm -hmm. but they were trying to will that reality into being so the idea that actually is was actually that america at the time that it of the revolutionary war like all men were not created equally as we know Mm -hmm. you know slavery was 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 real women couldn't vote all that stuff but the idea is like these were the values that they wanted to eventually get to and then the idea is that and his argument which i actually agree with is that what America is supposed to be is you are constantly moving towards that. It's not behind you. It's in front of you. Mm-hmm. And it's something that maybe like all utopias, you never get to, but you attempt to get there, which is a very different mythology. Thinking of it as a, a future narrative rather than a historical narrative. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was thinking like we also like kind of put sometimes the founders into a box of like they agreed and wrote these documents together and we should carry on their example, but they were also very different in their politics and in their personal lives. Yeah. I mean, like look at uh, Jefferson and Hamilton, um, (laughs) uh, for example. Um, And, you know, like I think that we kind of sometimes fall into this thing where we imagine America as like something that is a community that is homogenous in certain types of values, but, and I actually, my advisor, Nancy Armstrong and, um, her partner, Leonard Tinhouse wrote a book called novels in the time of democratic writing, the American example, which some Americanists have some issues with, but it doesn't matter. But, but their kind of point is, is that actually U S novels didn't really think of populations as like the same. And American novels weren't like producing a coherent, like, mythic narrative it was all very different and scattered and much more diverse than we thought well the original conception of the, of the government is yes. that it was going to be diverse and scattered because yeah state rights and we saw how well that worked out which is why we have the Arkansas Confederation yeah, so we have the Constitution yeah and still there's lots of problems with the fact that like there's states rights versus the federal government and and the electoral college <laughs> maybe well, maybe not get into the electoral college today <laughs> it's too late in the episode but um yeah but so so that's the question though like we've got all these things and yeah, i don't know i don't know if it's aspirational or not but we don't talk about mostly we don't talk about it like it's aspirational mostly when you're making any kind of small C conservative argument towards, you know, the, towards the founders, you know, this is what George Washington would have wanted. This is what, you know, mythologizing our heroes. And I don't even want to say just the founders. We do the same thing with Lincoln, who is obviously, you know, quite some time later, but I, I'm thinking, I got into an argument. You mean Lincoln? Didn't yeah, well, oh, you mean, I've been well, you to. mentioned um, Scott McCloud and Scott McCloud has a book that I also link in the show notes called The New Adventures of Abraham Lincoln, which is about him time traveling <gasps> to modern times. Um, and, you know, I still like the I still like the, the version where Deadpool goes around and murders uh, literary characters. <laughs> I prefer that yeah. reality. Well, what I was going to say, though, is like we I, I got into an argument on online, I don't know, a year or two ago about somebody who this is a guy who was arguing against Black Lives Matter and um, against Colin Kaepernick kneeling for the national anthem. And his argument was, and as you might guess, this is a white guy based on what I'm about to say, is his argument was that because I supported this, Martin Luther King would be ashamed of me. 
And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, Martin Luther King was an American hero. His, his main thing was standing up for the values of America. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> this is, so this is me and it, it, I came down to me and a professor I know who is white, both arguing against this guy is like, you have no idea what the fuck you're talking about, literally in those words. And it's like, well, no, his number one thing was, you know, he was always about standing up for American values and this and that. And he had just over the course of his life, his 40, 50 years on the planet, he had at some point, you know, grown to just believe this about Martin Luther King as, as though this were, this were the mythology because he was raised to believe of, of King as an American hero. Yeah, Martin Luther King was like labeled as an enemy he of was, the state He was by the number FBI. one on the FBI's most wanted like, list. He was, he was like, hardly like, he's basically a terrorist. Yes. A terrorist. <laughs> but they didn't, but he didn't see it that way because in, because now to him, it didn't because American mytholo- right. mythologizing and especially American right. education made him a hero. So all he knows is that Martin Luther King is a heroic figure who wanted, you know, his he he, he knows that Martin Luther King gave this speech again about um, about, you know, I be, you know, I believe people of all races will live in harmony. He knows that. And so I pointed him at an article written by Martin Luther King's kid like his actual daughter in support of Kaepernick saying that, um, that my father would have loved you continuing the work that he's done. And he is like, well, she's wrong. She doesn't really understand uh, what, what I know that's, uh, Martin Luther King stood for. Uh, and I'm like, that's his actual daughter. But, uh, but that, but that's, the, but that's the thing. Like people don't really, you know, why do we celebrate, you know, Oh, well the Confederate flag, uh, this stands for, this is, this is about states' rights. No, he doesn't because he really wants, but he really wants his hero to mean what he wants it to mean. Why do people like the Confederate flag? This stands for, you know, this was about states' rights. It wasn't about slavery. Well, you want it to be that. We want our symbols to mean what we want them to mean. And, and the, you know, we talked about historic. But I don't think that word means what you think it means. Maybe history doesn't matter. I mean, history as a story matters, but his, but when we say, is this the actual fact or is well, it always I, interpretive? Well, nobody ever cares about anything except for the interpretive. Well, cause there is nothing like, I mean, this is something I say all the time, even about science. There is like, in order to make a fact useful, you have to put it in narrative form. That's the way language and human cognition more or less works. Yeah. So there's no such thing as an impartial fact. Because once you put it in, once you put it in words, once you've communicated it, once you've used it, it's subjective and interpreted and partial every time. Like maybe with the possible exception of math, because I don't understand super advanced and sophisticated no, mathematics. Yeah. Although I did see an article once about math how math is subjective. Is subjective so that kind of <laughs> oh God, math is hard. I got to calculus and then wanted to like, no, no. After so calculus, knowledge doesn't exist and we've resolved nothing. Oh, well, okay. I guess. <laughs> Woo! Well, okay. So is, no, you, you took it to like other myth, mythologized figures in American history, which like, yeah, there's something similar going on, but the founders are seen as an origin story. So are origin myths different in a particular way than these other types of myths? Yes and Sometimes. no. <laughs> well, your origin is what you decide it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could write it a, a exactly. version of, of 
the history of the United States that begins with the Native Americans. That would be a very different national history. Mm -hmm. And origin is what you decide. I mean, like, what would be what would be the difference if we celebrate Juneteenth as Independence Day instead of July 4th? Well, Juneteenth, I wonder if people actually know what Juneteenth is. But um, our listeners, Juneteenth. I mean, I I don't think I knew what Juneteenth, like, actually understood what Juneteenth was until I was in high school. Uh, Just, well, real quick, Juneteenth, I don't know, maybe we should do an episode next year on Juneteenth about Juneteenth. But Juneteenth, the, you know, the 32nd version is after the Civil War ended and Lincoln pronounced all the slaves freed, certain people in the South decided, hey, you know, the best way of dealing with this, maybe if we just don't tell them, they'll just keep working. And so they didn't. All the white people decided to just not let the slaves know they were free and they continued treating them like slaves. And this went on. Uh, the uh, the um, Emancipation Proclamation was in February. This went on till June when some Union soldiers happened to be visiting. And they're like, hey, what the hell are all these slaves doing around? And everyone was like, uh, we didn't I, know. I, yeah, I feel like the response to that was probably just like collective shrug and then like yeah. that guy over there knows. Yes, so they, so they basically told all the slaves yeah we freed you like four months ago I mean, yeah. and that was juneteenth and it's a holiday in the african-american history world these days i mean this is a question of like you know if people have like now started like officially switching from christopher columbus day to indigenous people's day it completely changes the narrative in this case to something much better i mean this is a question for their episode but I, I mean, I would be curious to talk more about what the actual significance of that, of like that specific switch is, because although people, ha- a lot of people have switched to like, think like Christopher Columbus and like, and, and Indigenous Peoples Day, a lot of yep. people still don't contribute or pay attention to those same Indigenous Peoples descendants doing things like trying to protect their land and water, which is also our water and land and Yes. Yeah. A lot of people seem to think that genocide and mistreatment of Native Americans ended. To be fair, genocide and mistreatment of Native Americans is what the founders would have wanted. And with that, we have solved nothing. Uh, So. (laughs) (laughs) So. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely have resolved nothing. And we told you this episode would be a downer. So, you know, enjoy your barbecues this weekend. Um, (laughs) Charlie, thank you for joining us. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me on again. And now you're all going to be all depressed when you go and do your Hamilton speech. We're sorry. (laughs) Oh, I'll shove it to the back somehow. (laughs) It does sound fascinating. The entire, you know, I mean, you brought a perspective that none of us clearly have. So, you know, your, your work there sounds really interesting. And you do seem like you're very aware of, you know, sort of what you're doing. I like the interpretive aspect of it. So. I think that comes from my higher ups too, right? Um, I don't think when I went in there at 14, I would have been aware. Um, it was sort of pounded into me from from my bosses. Yeah. That's good. Anything else to promote besides the um, uh, that job? No, that's it. Come out for the 4th of July. We have awesome fireworks. You can meet Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, if you want to. Um, and uh, have, a, have a great, fun family day. See, the problem is I'm going to drive all the way down there to meet Alexander Hamilton, and then I'm going to like not see Lin-Manuel Miranda, and I'm going to be very upset with you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it is exactly with me. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, no, I mean, you're great and all, but you know, I'd be like, ooh, and you're not him. <laughs> uh, 
My my favorite thing about Hamilton coming to Deepak besides going to go see it was in the FAQs uh, on the website. It was like, is Lin Manuel Miranda playing Hamilton? No. Answer: No. Uh, Hannah, since you talked to, what about you? Starting tomorrow, you can find me on the newest episode of the Protagonist Podcast, where I talk about the greatest novel of all time, Daniel Deronda, by George Eliot, and features the greatest female protagonist of all time, Gwendolyn Harleth. It's kind of like Jane Austen if Jane Austen wasn't terrible. <laughs> and also, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Hannah Lee Rogers. Uh, I love how every time something. you predict, like last week, you did predict that you would be talking about the Mississippi uh, State baseball game. And then I checked last night and you were. So there you go. <laughs> Hannah can tell the future, just very specific mm-hmm. futures. <laughs> It's it's really easy to tell your own future when it's in your it's something in your control. Katia, what about you? Um, nothing to make any fun. Although, if you want to follow me on sewing Instagram, which is actually going to become relevant to an upcoming episode, surprisingly enough, because some interesting political things have been happening in the sewing and knitting world recently. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at just that nerd kid. And you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Maverick or on my blog at www.chrismaverick.com. You can follow the show on Twitter at Vox Popcast, on Instagram at Vox Popcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Vox Popcast, or follow the show's blog on www.voxpopcast.com, where we post the next topic that we'll be talking about. You know, for instance, the one Katia just mentioned about sewing. And trust me, this is going to be way more interesting than like anybody who doesn't like sewing thinks it's going to be so it's actually yeah basically it's about how the dating community is fighting white supremacy in a very strange way and on the internet so that so if you go to our blog right now you will see and be able to comment on that and like contribute to an upcoming episode if you enjoy the show please subscribe to us on itunes or stitcher or spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcast from and i don't know why i and every other podcast host says that because if you enjoy the show shouldn't you already be subscribed i don't know but assume you're not then go subscribe right now and more importantly while you're there especially if you're on itunes write us a five-star review that helps other people find the show it you know gooses the algorithms and it fights white supremacy and makes the founders want what you want that's how it works it's magic mm. trust me and more importantly it makes mav not cry himself to sleep at it night. makes me not cry myself to sleep at night see i was trying to not mention that part i was trying to it, you know people i brought it up several times but it's a big i have no dignity <laughs> um i don't think he had dignity when we started the show to be fair but you know why did i, I definitely I, why did i, I pick you people to be to host this with me i don't understand <laughs> I, I, I don't know <laughs> i don't even know how i got on the show honestly but we don't need to rehash that here uh, I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song that is building ever more so epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank you at home for listening. Thanks again, Charlie, for joining us. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. I gotta holler just to be heard with every word. I drop knowledge. I'm a diamond in the rough. I shine a piece of coal trying to reach my goal. My power of speech unimpeachable. Only 19, but my mind is older. These New York City streets get colder. I shoulder every burden, every disadvantage I've learned to manage. I don't have a gun to brandish. I walk these streets famished. The plan is to fan this spark into a flame. But damn, it's getting dark, so let me spell out the name. I am the A-L-E-X-A-N-D. 
Eeyore, we are meant to be a colony that runs independently. Meanwhile, Britain keeps shitting on us endlessly. <laughs> they tax us relentlessly. Then King George turns around and runs a spending spree. And he ain't ever gonna set his descendants free. So there will be a revolution in this century. And to me, he says in parentheses, don't be shocked when your history book mentions me. I will lay down my life if it sets us free. Eventually, you'll see my ascendancy. And I am not throwing away my shot. It's something like that. Oh. Wow! Yeah.